Um, we are in a series, if you are new with us, that we've been walking through the, the book of First Peter. First Peter is actually a letter that the Apostle Peter, uh, Peter who was one of Jesus' disciples, uh, that's the Peter we're talking about, wrote to a group of churches that were scattered across Asia Minor under Roman captivity, Roman rule, uh, primarily made of Jewish Christians, people that have been saved out of Judaism and have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And looking at this passage of scripture and, and really the entire letter and understanding its context, if you've been a part of this series as we've walked through this letter, uh, we're going to close it out next week. It's going to be a special time next week. But if you've been with us, you've heard me say this before. And so I hope for you, it's redundant because it's like in your mind, the context of this letter. Peter's writing it to a group of Christians, as I said, that are scattered across the known world at the time that are being persecuted for their faith. Uh, they're under Roman rule. Nero is the emperor that's ruling at the time. If you know anything about history, Roman history is one of my favorite time periods in history. Uh, Roman history, Nero was a maniac. Most people think that he was insane. And, and, and he was known for persecuting and killing Christians. And so that's what these people are being faced with. And in the midst of that darkness... Peter is giving them hope, reminding them that they're different, that they've been saved by Jesus Christ, that this world is not their final home, as difficult as it may be for them in the time that they were living, that they have something greater to look forward to, that even in the goodness that they may have experienced, that that wasn't the most that their heaven would be. And so as we look at, look at it now in a country where we don't have to wonder if we're going to have to live or die based on whether or not we say we believe in Jesus. Well, we're not under that type of persecution or those types of circumstances, but nevertheless, I don't want to minimize whatever you may be experiencing today or have been experiencing or will experience. How do we have hope, the living hope that's talked about in chapter one? How do we live in that? How does that give us hope? Why does that make us different? And as people who are different because we've been saved by Jesus Christ, if that's you this morning, if you place your trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for your sins, you have been made different. God sees you as one of his sons and daughters, as we've just sung about. You have a heaven to look forward to when you pass from this life to the next. This world is not your final home. This is not the most heaven that you will experience. You're different. And you're different because of Jesus Christ. So how do we live in that reality in the here and now knowing that that's what awaits us? The tagline of this series is how do you and I live faithfully in a world that's not our home? That's what we've been answering as we've walked through this passage of scripture. This morning will be no different but we find ourselves in 1 Peter 5 verses 6 through 11. So if you're there, say you're there. All right, awesome. Look at verse six. Peter says this, humble yourselves. You ought to underline that, circle that. If you're new to Salem Chapel, you know you need to bring a pen because I'm gonna ask you to do a lot of that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. You need to underline that phrase. So circle humble yourselves. I got it in my Bible. Humble yourselves and then underline under the mighty hand of God because we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about that this morning so that at the proper time he may exalt you, 
Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Remember, I gave the context. Peter's writing to a group of Jewish Christians that have been dispersed from their home in Israel. They're all over the known world, five provinces of Asia Minor. That's where they're at. So what Peter, he's making reference to this. Hey, I want to encourage you. You have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the known world that are experiencing what you're experiencing, but they're different. But allow your commonality and who you believe Jesus Christ to be to remind you that you're part of something. You're part of a family. Then he says, And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, like you underline these words, they're so powerful, can't wait till we get to this in the message today, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Here's the title of the message this morning if you're taking notes. And can I encourage you to do that today? Pull out your phone, pull out a pad, whatever it is, write in the margin of your Bible. Here's the title, Humble Yourself. You know, there's a phrase like, check yourself, right? Some of you have heard of that? I don't know if that's still in style or not. My kids now tell me now, like, I could go on a tangent about words that I didn't know, like cap was one of a thing that you screw on. Now that's actually a phrase that they use. Um, if you don't have teenagers, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I think that's still a thing. You know, check yourself. Well, today, humble yourself. Let me give you the idea, and it comes out of verse six, that I really want us to drive home today. I want us to unpack this idea that comes from God's word. This is what I want you to hear today, that we are different. We've been talking about that all series long, but we're different how? We're different when humility is something we seek after rather than run from. Can I tell you today, that is not going to be normative for you. And when I say you, I put myself in there. We don't naturally want to run after being humble. Naturally, I want to run from that. But in God's word over and over again in various passages of scripture, we are told to humble ourselves. To be humble, to exercise humility. Philippians 2, let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mindset? The mindset of humility. We as Christians are instructed that that is supposed to be part of the ethos of the Christian life. Humility. It's not natural for you to want to go after that. and It's not natural for me to want to go after that. I mean, we live in a culture, right, where that's not something that's looked at as, as something to aspire to. We oftentimes equate humility with weakness, right? Our culture says, man, you know, I want to be, I want to go after the American dream. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps, so to speak. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go after this. If I just, out of the sweat of my brow, and just go after, no, no, no. 
I am my hero. I'm going to accomplish these things. And so we look at humility as something that gets in the way of what we want. Because you may be in the way of what I want. God may be in the way of what I want. So humility is not naturally something that we aspire to. Just so you're aware, nothing's really changed because 2,000 years ago, Roman culture, humility was not a virtue that was sought after either. We don't naturally seek after it. But once again, look at verse six. It says, humble yourself therefore, and then that phrase that I had you underline, under the mighty hand of God. That's so key to run after humility rather than run from it. See, we see the hand of God this morning one of two ways. We see it as a fist that literally wants to grind us and beat us down into submission. That may be you today. You see God's hand as having done that, is doing that, or because it has done that, you see it as doing that in the future. And so when you see that phrase, under the mighty hand of God, that in no way gives you warm and fuzzies. It angers you scares you, and I wonder if it's not for these various reasons. You can keep that picture up there as I go through this. I wonder if we view it as, or view the hand of God as a negative rather than a positive because of these things. Maybe it's our personality, right? So, I just feel like the more that I think I've taken all the personality tests that are out there, a new one pops up, right? It's like the thing everybody loves to do, right? But you know why? You know why really it is? Because we love to talk about ourselves. There's actually chemicals in the brain that go off when you talk about yourself. So we love to go to those little seminars and learn how many more letters am I or or numbers am I because, man, we love to talk about ourselves. But here's the danger with that is sometimes we can excuse why we don't seek after certain things. Well, I'm an aggressive personality. So therefore, well, that excuse, I'm just this way. I'm just these four letters. I'm just this animal. I'm just this number. Therefore, I get a little more leeway to why I don't seek after humility. You may have more of a quiet demeanor. Here's what I've found. It doesn't matter if you have an aggressive personality or passive-aggressive personality. Every one of us in the room and you watching right now and wherever you're at or you're listening to this, whenever it is, we all struggle with humility. Personality. How about pride? I know how to run my life better than God. Pride. How about this? How about your past? Some of us look at this hand of God and we see it as a fist because we look and we're like, no, 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 I tried what's found in verse six in my life. I tried it. And God did not meet the expectation that I think he should have. So I've tried that, I bought the t-shirt, I'm not going there again. And so your past causes you to view the hand of God as negative rather than positive. And how about this one? How about pain? pain. And you're like, man, I I am in such pain right now. 
It could have, uh, this pain could have happened to me yesterday or it could have happened to me 10, 15 years ago. But I have deep pain. And part of that pain is, is I can't reconcile why God would allow me to experience that. And so your pain causes you to view God's mighty hand as a fist rather than viewing his hand as something that is designed to provide intentional care for you. We view it one of two ways. A fist that wants to grind you, that wants to beat you down into submission, or an intentional hand of care that wants to lead you and guide you and direct you and protect you and provide for you. Which one is it? Just being transparent today, there's been times in my life so that you don't think better of yourself, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll lower the bar for you. There have been times in my life where I viewed the mighty hand of God as a fist rather than a hand of intentional care. And you know the first way that you begin to change that perception is you admit it. Some of you, you know theologically in your brain that God's word says that his hand is not a fist that wants to beat you down, but you're like, I know that theologically, but I don't believe that experientially. And can I just encourage you that it's okay to admit that? It's okay to say, God, that's where I'm at today. It's not okay that you stay there. But the first way that you don't stay there, the first way that you humble yourself is you humble yourself before God and say, God, I'm struggling right now. So I say that because it's so important that we identify where we're at today before we look at the instruction from God's word on how we view God properly so that we can humble ourselves. Listen to me. Humility is essential to your discipleship. What do I mean by discipleship? You're growing in your relationship with God. It can't happen without humility. Humility is essential to your discipleship. And God is fully committed to make that a part of your discipleship. I had a pastor say this, God gives you the opportunity to humble yourself or humiliate you. You get the choice. I don't know about you, I've chosen both of those paths at times in my life, and both of those are the intentional care of God. I prefer the former over the latter. But I just want to, once again, be transparent with you today because this passage of Scripture, if you were to ask me, Johnny, what's a passage of Scripture that the, that the Lord has grown you in and refined you in and is continually working in you its concepts and principles? I would answer you 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Without a doubt. Doesn't mean that all of God's word is not important in, in, in refining me and rebuking me and training me up in righteousness, 1 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But let me just be completely transparent with you. Over the last six years of my life, if there is a passage of scripture that I can point to specific events that were God's process of refinement to teach me what we're about to unpack today, it is this passage. 
And I say that because I want you to hear this, and I don't want you to dismiss it as hyperbole. I want you to take it seriously. If there is one passage of Scripture that will change your life and how you see God, it is this passage of Scripture. Because in it is the essence of how we walk with the Lord. It has changed me, it is changing me, and it will continue to change me. So let's look at it this morning. I want to give you, first of all, a definition of humility, because after all, if we're going to talk about it for 40 minutes, it's probably important that we define it. So here's my definition of humility. I'm sure there's others that are better than mine, but you get me today, so you get my definition. Here it is. Humility is this, is a submissiveness to God's purpose and process for my life. That's what we're looking at today. When Peter says, humble yourself, I am submitting to God's purpose and process for my life. You don't have one without the other. Humility. So let me give you three ways this morning on how you can know that you are seeking after humility rather than running from it. I want to give you three ways, and it's from this text. The first way is from verse 7. We just read it, but I'm going to read it again. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Number one, you are submitting under God's mighty hand as a means of preparation in you. How do I know this morning, John, if I'm running towards humility rather than running from it? Well, according to God's word, I see submitting myself under the mighty hand of God as a means of preparation in me. Because this is what God wants to grow in me. What's found in verse seven. This growing of learning to cast my anxieties on him, believing, understanding, clinging to that he cares for me. Here's what the word casting means. I love, I love what this word means in the Greek. Sometimes when we look at the English, it doesn't give us the full idea of what, what the word means. And the New Testament is written in Greek, if you didn't know that. Here's what this word literally means. To throw something on someone else as their responsibility to handle. How many of you like to delegate? Raise your hand. Okay, that means a bunch of you have a problem delegating. That's another message in itself. I raise my both hands. So the staff that works with me, the elders that serve alongside of me, like I have no problem delegating. You know what I love to delegate? The things that I don't like to do. I love to delegate those things. Now, thankfully, you know, with enough people speaking in my life, I've also come to grips of what I'm just not good at doing. But we have permission from God's word here to delegate what we don't want to do. So any anxiety that you're experiencing this morning, just think of it, and it shouldn't take you long, because if you're struggling with it, you can name it real quick. Or you may have a laundry list. I don't care if it's one things or 50 things. What are the anxieties this morning? 
You may have a translation that says cares, same idea. What are they? Because according to this verse, what God wants to prepare in me is the art of knowing how to cast. And I don't mean a line on a fishing pole. I mean your anxieties. And I do that understanding that these worries, these cares are not designed as something that I am to be ultimately responsible for. Now hear hear this. I'm not saying in my Christian life I just sit on my hands and do absolutely nothing and just take a total passive role. That's not it at all. But what I mean is, is I have never seen a problem solved by worry. I've tried it. Anybody else in the room? I've tried it. But when he says casting, he means, no, no, see those things as someone else's responsibility to be concerned with. Delegate those things to the one who has been wired and has the strength to be able to handle them. Now, if you're reading this passage like I am and you're inquisitive like I am, I'm like, well, how many of my anxieties? What's the word there that gives us the answer? It's a three-letter word. Starts with the letter A. Everybody got me? Say it out loud. Say it one more time. Oh, I'm so glad that word is in there. Because it could say, casting your anxieties on him, and we could walk out of here and say, yeah, but God doesn't care about that. But it says all. The whole of your worries is the idea. So I am literally to throw the whole of my worries onto God as being responsible to be able to handle those things, carry those things, work out those things. See, the opposite of me casting my anxieties on the Lord is what? Being worried about them. So this isn't on the screen, but here's worry. Worry is the result of a conclusion you've reached that you are incapable of handling the situation. Otherwise, why would you worry about it? You've already reached the conclusion that you are incapable or insufficient to handle the situation. But you know what's crazy about our psyche is we still want to hold on to it. Ah, There's got to be another angle that I haven't thought of and how to solve this problem. But you know what the antidote to worry is? It's verse 7. It's casting. Like, I had the 9 a.m. do this, and they were reluctant to do it, so. But this is the motion that we need to get used to in our spiritual life. This is casting. This isn't mine, Lord. Here you go. I'm going to practice the spiritual discipline of delegating. Here you go, Lord. Here's the problem we have. You know what we do? We take worries and we go like this. And before, we just keep stacking them. And we keep stacking them. And now I gotta get a ladder. And we practice that discipline versus, no, no, no. I'm gonna learn to throw off the things that honestly, I already know I can't handle, but for some reason, I want to keep on taking. Why? Because we got a problem with humility. We don't want to admit that we can't handle it. Listen to me. There is a poster child 
of someone who naturally equates humility with weakness. You know what the poster child is? Just look at the screen. It's my face. I don't want you to know what I know. I can't handle it. But I don't want you to know that. So therefore, I try to pretend, and I'm like, yeah, just load it up. That's why oftentimes we don't learn the spiritual discipline, the art of casting. And instead of casting, we keep because we don't want others to perceive us as weak. Which brings me to a very familiar passage of Scripture in Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29, where Jesus says this, come to me. All who are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, laid down. Because you know what I've found? When I don't practice this, and I practice, no, 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 let me take on another thing. Let me take on another thing. I got this. I want people to think that I'm strong. What ends up happening is, is I am literally emotionally, oftentimes can be even physically and spiritually on the floor. Why? Because I have taken on what is not my business to carry. And Jesus knows that that is your nature as well as it is mine. That's why he says, come to me. Hey, I got your solution. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will do what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Who is Jesus? He is gentle and he is lowly in heart. He is humble. He is humility personified. And when I take his example, what did Jesus do? Every day he got away with the Father. He was God in the flesh. But every day, he didn't think he could do ministry in his own strength, even though he was God. Why did he do that? To set an example for you and me. I can't care for someone's needs. I can't preach God's word. I can't show someone the love that Jesus has for them. So what does Jesus do to give us an example? Because he had to? No. He was God. To give us an example. No, no, I have an understanding. I'm gentle. I'm not Superman. I'm humble in heart. And when I model what Jesus gave me as an example, what's the result? I will find rest for my soul. Some of us in this room are so exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually because you have not learned to cast, you are keeping. And when you submit to the mighty hand of God. You don't see that as something to run from, but to run to because you're like, Lord, this is preparation for my soul. You want to continually grow me and understanding that your hand's not a fist. Your hand is stretched out as care. God, you want to take those things. You want me to give those things to you. We, you want me to understand who you are and who I am. And in understanding who you are, I also understand who I'm not. Listen to this. I wrote this down. When I see God's hand as a means of his care for me, I then am willing to submit under it because I see that casting my anxieties over to him is a process of preparation in my life to where God is growing me to the place that when I am faced with worry, and we will be, 
I'm resolved to cast rather than keep the whole, the whole, all of my present and future worries upon the Lord. Listen to me. I cannot have a God who cares, who is not also in control. And when I read verse 7, what God is saying is, I want to do a work in you. It's a part of my preparation in you. It's a part of your discipleship with me that you learn that I care for you. That word care for you literally means this in the Greek. It means, it has this idea, casting all your anxieties on him for it is a care to him concerning you. Or you could translate it this way, for you are his concern. How awesome is that? If you look to me and say, hey, Johnny, I need need to tell you about something, and I've got this worry, and I want to hand it over to you. Don't you love that? I want to hand it over to you so I don't have to worry about it anymore. Just to be transparent, I may not every situation be like, I'm so glad I talked to you. I'm so glad your problem now has become my problem. I'm not saying that so you don't come to me. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying our nature. You're the same way. Don't laugh at me. But here's what's awesome about God. There is never a worry, no matter how large or how small, where God is ever going to say, why did you bring that to me? It is his concern to care for you. Here's the second way that we demonstrate that we are seeking after humility rather than running, running from it. It's found in verses eight and nine. You are submitting under God's mighty hand, not just as a means of preparation in you, but as a means of protection over you. Because what does God's hand do? It protects and it also lifts you up. There's a preparation piece that God is doing something in you, but it's also a hand of protection over you. Look at what it says again in verse eight. It says, be sober, be watchful. Why? Because you have an adversary, the devil. The word Satan literally means adversary. The word devil means an accuser, a slanderer. Do you know that's the devil's mode of operation? Hey, God, did you see what, see what Johnny just did? He doesn't love you. He doesn't trust you. He doesn't. That's how he works. He prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. See, it takes humility to admit that you need protection. I wonder how many of us walked out of the door today to go to church or get up this morning and thought to yourself, I need God's protection today. If we're being honest, probably not many of us. Just oftentimes not in the forefront of our mind. And oftentimes it's in seasons of suffering and seasons where we're putting, put through the meat grinder, so to speak, and circumstances where we're being faced with the consequences of sin, whether we've done that or whether we've experienced that by someone or something else, that we are most susceptible 
Because Peter is writing this to a group of people that are being persecuted. And he says, you need to be sober-minded. The idea is respect your adversary. See, that's the first way that we look to the hand of God as protection. As we say to ourselves, I have a responsibility to respect my adversary. How is he described? He's being described as a roaring lion. Satan is described in many ways. He's described as a deceiver when he mentions that Satan took on the form of a servant or, or a serpent in 2 Corinthians 11.3, speaking of the Garden of Eden. But here he's spoken of as a roaring lion. And the idea of sober-minded means to be mentally alert, understanding that you have an adversary that wants to destroy you destroy you Ephesians 6 12 says this we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places listen to me Satan and his demons are, are a formidable enemy don't joke about it don't dabble in it and wanting to know more about the occult and things like that. No, no, no. You are inviting something into your life that you do not want. He is a formidable enemy. Respect your adversary. But then he says this, be watchful. Recognize your adversary. Be watchful. Idea of stay on guard. Now, here's how I can illustrate those two ideas of be sober-minded, be mentally alert, and be watchful. So I may have said this to some of you before, so this may be, you've heard this before, but that's okay. I'm not naive enough to think that you remember everything that I say. Um, so I worked at SeaWorld when I was in college. I worked on the landscaping crew called the Horticultural Department. Um, I worked on it. So here's a map of SeaWorld. I grew up in Orlando, for those of you who don't know. And, and you see what I have circled? Let me get out of the way. I'm gonna get off camera and everyone's gonna freak out. Um, Right circled is, see what that says? Anybody can read that? Say it out loud. Alligators, that's right. So that summer, we, the park was divided into sections, and each horticulture department had a section of the park to work on, to, to groom, to clean, to trim, all that stuff, plant flowers. Well, that summer, Ours extended on that Key West, Whale and Dolphin Theater, Garden of Discovery, Manitou Rescue, and Alligators. And so I remember one morning, we started at work early, 6 a.m., because it gets incredibly hot in the summer in, in Orlando. And I remember, you know, our crew chief is there who oversees our crew. And we're like, he's like, guys, we're going, we're going over to this section of the park, and we're going to need to groom some of the areas where the alligators are. Now, I'm a summer worker, I don't work there full time, so that means I'm at the bottom of the totem pole. They knew I was studying to be a pastor, so that brought on a whole nother element of, of wonderful encouragement from, from the guys. And, and, uh, and so they were like, uh, yeah, Johnny, we're gonna need you to go inside the pit where the alligators are and trim those bushes and couple other of, of the guys will be there to help clean up the trimmings and all that stuff. And I, I literally thought they were joking. I was like, get out of here. They're like, no, seriously. I'm like, really? Like, like, get in? 
Yeah, oh, don't worry. We got animal control that's going to come. So this little lady that's like 100 pounds soaking wet comes in with this, with this long stick with this little like rope thing at the end. And somehow she gathers up all the alligators into a corner here. And literally, this pit is no bigger than, than part of this stage. So I'm over here and I'm trimming a shrub the whole time. Literally, the alligators are as close to that keyboard as... They're at that keyboard, I'm here. I remember it vividly. This is what, yeah, see? They, uh, they're, they're even smiling. I remember those faces. So, so I'm trimming there. Listen, I have no idea what that bush looks like. It's probably like this, was like this or whatever, because the whole time I'm like this. And then when I was picking up, I was like this. Why do I give that illustration? Because never once did I take my mind off of those things. Never once did I forget that those things were there. Why? Because I was fully aware that that thing had the potential to devour me if I was not watchful. Listen to me, I had already charted out, if that thing comes running at me, I can jump over this fence by just pressing on my hand and getting it. I had thought the whole thing through. Why do I say that? That is literally the equivalent of what Peter is saying here in those words that we need to respect and recognize that we have an enemy that is not to be played with but wants to devour us. And I think we fall so short in understanding that reality and living that reality, not out of fear, because First John says, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, but understanding that he has a mission and that is to devour you. I mean, we ought to have this on the forefront of our minds as we've gone through a year where everything has been taken from us. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have lost your businesses. Others of you have gone through emotional depression or whatever it is because your world has been turned upside down. And some of us think to ourselves that because we've gone so long through this that this is our norm and it's okay for me not to be engaged in God's word with the community doing those types of things and thinking that somehow because the world didn't fall out from underneath us, then I'm okay. And I've thought to myself, man, if these things don't wake me up to the reality of what I need, then what will? We're thinking, well, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. My marriage is, I haven't lost my marriage. and My kids obeying okay. We go on and on and on. Or we could say, yeah, I went through that crisis, but now that crisis has seemed to kind of passed and seemed to be doing okay. There's a reason why it says, prowls like a lion. Because if you've ever watched anything on Discovery or YouTube or anything, you've seen how a lion hunts. They just don't come out, hey, everybody, I'm here to eat you. They're literally hiding in the bushes, making that animal feel like it's safe until at the last second it pounces. 
And we've got to get past the idea that because I'm not experiencing present consequences, because of me living contrary to God's word, because I'm not experiencing them in the immediate, that therefore, therefore what God's word says actually isn't a reality. I'm actually doing okay. Because I've never run into someone whose life was literally blown up by circumstances to where they said, you know what, today I'm going to cheat on my wife. Today I'm going to cheat on my husband. Today I'm going to become an alcoholic. Today I'm going to become addicted to porn. Today whatever, whatever it is, you know what it was? It was a slow fade of consequences and erosion to where there came a point where you realized I have been totally dismissive to be watchful and to be mentally alert and I have fallen right into the trap of the enemy. God, help us. God, help us in that reality. Because here what it's saying is, no, 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 you need to respect and you need to recognize your adversary. And here's the third thing. Under the mighty hand of God and understanding its protection is we need to resist our adversary. There's an offensive component It's not we hide in a corner sucking our thumbs saying, God, please help me. No, no, no. He says what? Resist him firm in your faith. How? Ephesians 6 is the passage of scripture that my mind goes to. Where we're told we have the armor of God that we're to put on every day. And like I said, how many of us are saying to ourselves, man, I can't afford to walk out today out of these doors without being prayed up, without being in God's word, without making sure that whatever worries I have, I'm taking to him, knowing that I'm in a spiritual battle, knowing that God wants to destroy, or the devil wants to destroy me, he wants to destroy my marriage, if I'm married, he wants to destroy my kids, if I have kids, he wants to destroy me succeeding at work, whatever it is, that that's the devil's mission, But I've been given the power to resist him because I have the armor of God. It's a slide that just describes the significance of the armor of God. I'm just going to read these things. You can take a screenshot if you want. We have the belt of truth that's mentioned in Ephesians 6. I have absolute truth this morning. That has become a passe thing, but listen to me. Don't allow the culture to sway you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is our absolute truth. This is our anchor. It trumps what I say. It trumps what you say. I have the breastplate of righteousness. That means I have Christ's righteousness on my behalf. Satan is an, is an accuser. He can accuse God all day long. You know what he's going to say? No, no, no. That child is mine. I have the gospel shoes of peace. In other words, my peace And life is grounded in the gospel, not in circumstances. I have the shield of faith that's able to guard me against Satan's advances. It gives me power. It gives me his promises. I have the helmet of salvation to guard my thinking, that wants the things that want to challenge my identity. And I have the sword of the spirit. That is the offensive weapon of God. How did Jesus endure the temptation of the enemy? He knew God's word. He knew truth from fiction. But it takes humility to admit that you need protection. Here's the last thing. How do you know you're seeking after humility rather than running from God? You are submitting under God's mighty hand as a means of his provision for you. 
As a means of his preparation in you? Yes. Verse 7. As a means of his protection over you? Yes. Verses 8 and 9. But as a means of his provision for you. Look at what it says in verse 10. Peter doesn't dismiss their suffering. He says, after you've suffered a little while, you know what that gives me hope? Suffering is a season. It's a season. But God's provision in your life is eternal. It's your being revealed in this life, and it will be revealed in eternity to come. See, we need to view God's hands as this. We need to see God's hand as a hand of his grace. Why do I say that? Because Peter calls him the God of all grace. He's called you into his eternal glory in Christ. The things that happen in your life are God's grace. The ability to endure difficulties because we live in a sinful world, sins all around us. That means I am going to suffer. That means I am going to experience pain. That means those things, but they are not from the hand of God. No, no, no. God's hand is a hand of grace that sustains me in the midst of those times. His hand is a hand that restores what is broken. Why do I say that? Because Peter says he restores That word means to mend. I've had things in my life that have been broken. Relationships that have been broken. Dreams that have been broken. But I can stand here today saying that God is growing me to understand he is a God who restores. He can restore your marriage. He can restore that son or daughter. He can mend what is broken in whatever circumstance it is. Why? Because that's what God says he does. No, no, no. His hand is a means of provision. It's a hand that picks you up when you fall. It just doesn't say his hand restores. It says that he will himself also confirm. That word confirm literally means to pick you up. So when I try to weigh down myself with all my cares and all my anxieties and think that I can handle it and I'm strong enough and I got this and I want you to think that of me, but in reality, I know it's not true and I weigh myself down and I'm flat on my face emotionally, spiritually, physically. Praise God, I have a God who doesn't take his hand and slap me over the head and say, you moron. He says, no, 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 I'm gonna take my hand and I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to confirm you and stand you on your feet again. When you submit under my mighty hand, when you exercise humility and submit to my purpose and process in your life. His hand is also a hand that is building you into the person he's destined you to become. Because what does it say there? He will strengthen and establish you. Those are building terms. He's doing a work in you. He's doing a work in you. You're fighting against it, but God's committed to who you are destined to be. And so he's going to be patient. He's going to say, okay, I wanted you to just humble yourself, but you're going to need to, you need to, need to grow in your own way, and you're going to reach a point where you're going to be experiencing yourself, and it's going to involve humiliation, and I'm going to be here to care, 
to provide what you need when you need it because I'm committed into building you to the person that you are destined to be. I don't know about you, but I want to submit to that God. That's a process that God's been doing in me. And it's a process that he's been doing in you. And it's a process that he wants to continue to do in you. Listen to me. If you ever doubt that the hands of God are not a fist, but are intentional care, we need to look at the hands of the Savior. They communicate everything that we need to hear. When Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to his disciples, do you remember there was one who was doubting that it happened? And what did Thomas say? I'm not going to believe until I touch the nail-pierced hands and touch the side that I saw the spear go into. And Jesus appears after the resurrection. But what does he still have? Those scars. So that Thomas can see he is who he says he is. One day when we see Jesus face to face, he's going to have those same hands. And he's going to have that same side. So for all of eternity, we will never have the ability to doubt, but only praise what the mighty hand of God is. I want every head bowed and every eye closed in this place. If you're watching us online, I just, I don't want you to turn me off yet. Because I've mentioned that God is been do it, teaching me this. I mean, I can see it so clearly the last six years of my life, but that doesn't mean he wasn't before. I just didn't see it as clearly. And that doesn't mean that he's going to continue to, that I, somehow I've arrived because he's going to need to continue to. But for some of you, maybe this is the first time you've come to that reality in this passage of scripture and seeing maybe some significance of it and how it speaks to your life. So here's what I know. You're not just gonna walk out of here and say, yep, that was good, I got that, I'm all good, on to the next thing. I want to encourage you that you just need to take inventory of your life in comparison to this passage and just allow your life and your mind and your time with God to soak in this passage. Because I believe it or I wouldn't have said it. If we live out this passage of scripture and submit ourselves to it, it will change our life and how we see God and will in turn how we see others. And so we're going to sing a song this morning that has been around for a long time. It's called We Fall Down. Because that's what humility is. And so as we sing this song, you may not even be able to sing. You just are like, God, I just need to confess my sin of pride. I need to confess my angst that I've seen you as your hand is a fist rather than extended hand of intentional care that's okay however you need to do business with God but man I want when the words come out of our mouth we fall down that we mean it first service I was singing instead of we fall down we lay our crowns I was saying we fall down I lay my cares 
man, let's sing this song and let's mean it. Let's walk out of these doors ready to follow our Savior, to submit to him with humility. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient to what you have said today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us this morning?